HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Tayama, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Cole Sandberg, who is the founder of Kiraku. Kiraku operates multiple projects that aim to preserve Japan's rich cultural and natural heritage for future generations. Ko has a strong business background with the unique bicultural vantage point of the Japanese tradition. And Ko's diverse projects include transforming abundant machia, or traditional Japanese townhouse, in Kyoto into Michelin-awarded luxury ryokan, and reviving a sake brewery that was founded in 1793, but unfortunately closed in 2012. Now, the brewery became a micro sake brewery to express the rich local terroir. So today we'll discuss how Kobe came up with the business to preserve Japanese culture and tradition, his intriguing project of hotels and restaurants that you would want to experience on your next trip to Japan, how seriously Japan is losing cultural heritage, and much, much more. But before you start, Japan Eats is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Cole Sandberg. Hello, Cole. Welcome to the show. Hi, Akiko. Thank you very much for having me. So, first of all, uh, let's get to know you. Um, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Um, I was uh, born in Fukushima, Japan. Uh, my dad's American. My mom's Japanese. Uh, however, mainly grew up in Tokyo, but going back and forth uh, between Connecticut, uh, San Francisco, Bay Area, and Japan. So it's been 
you know, I've been moving around every like maybe four or five years or something. Um, gr mainly grew up eating Japanese food. Uh, my grandparents in Fukushima are farmers, so they spent uh, a lot of time making good fruits, vegetables, and they always sent us stuff uh, on a weekly basis. So uh, my mom made great washoku out of that. Mm, wow. And then in addition, and you spent time in Bay Area, which is also a very good place to good, eat good food. So you're very lucky. Yes, uh, slightly expensive than Kyoto. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and then you founded uh, Kiraku in 2013. And uh, mm -hmm. we'll get into the details in a moment, but what did you do before you started Kiraku? Uh, yeah, uh, upon graduating, I graduated from UC Berkeley uh, back in 2010. And afterwards, I joined a private equity firm, a global private equity firm called uh, Fortress Investment Group. Uh, in their Tokyo office as a new grad. And I was mainly handling more of uh, financial products in distressed situations. Uh, and I guess this means in general terms, more like corporate bankruptcies, litigations, and turning around companies that are not really doing well. So a lot of the deals that I was uh, in the past involved in was more like hospitality industry related. So it was more like cleaning up deals that failed mm. during the global financial crisis and more like resolving lawsuits between like families and shareholders and coming up with better solutions to just turn around uh, real estate. And mainly um, this is where I kind of entered uh, knowing the Ryokan business from here. Mm, right. So you were a change manager already before you studied Kiraku. Yeah, yeah. It, it was more like a, uh, just working until 3, 4 a.m. every day, oh. <laughs> uh, just going through documentation and such. But uh, yes, it was a great experience. Uh, and I yeah started Kiraku uh, from 2013 after that. Mm, right. So what is the concept of Kiraku and uh, how many projects are you working on right now? Mm -hmm. um, when I initially started, we were doing more of data consulting for hedge funds and um, um, corporate clients in Japan. But uh, afterwards, I guess more from 2015 or 16, uh, we were asked for more like uh, to look at into projects in regional Japan uh, to just do it. So like um, the concept that kind of evolved into Kiraku, uh, what it is right now is we kind of uh, tried to look for hidden gems and business ideas across Japan. And we started working from there. Um, right now we manage about four ryokans and 10 vacation homes. Uh, we also operate, uh, we operate, own and operate a sake brewery in Nagano. And in parallel, we're working on a few development projects and yokan turnaround deals uh, that hopefully we could announce sometime in 2022. Mm, wow, that's a lot of projects. So, um, and what is your mission in running Kiraku? Well, um, it, it probably comes down to value creation and sustainability, where uh, the current, like, I guess, Japanese ecosystem, uh, we don't really believe is quite sustainable. So in, in that end, we try to identify uh, unique business opportunities across Japan and hopefully 
uh, more globally in the future. Uh, that only not, you know, doesn't only create long-term value for investors, but also for the people in the community, uh, so that you could kind of preserve the rich cultural and natural heritage uh, in Japan for more like future generations. Mm, right. And not to mention, Japan has a long history compared to places like uh, America. So there's a lot to preserve. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, yeah, but how did you come up with the concept of Kiraku? Like, you know, there are so many places, potential projects, but it's it's just, it's not easy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I used to always fly for business maybe to like Europe or the States uh, just to do more due diligence and uh, look at projects uh, overseas. But um, maybe being half Japanese, uh, I always had a connection with Japan, especially in the regional area uh, to do so. Um, And I guess, um, you know, it's as an investment fund, you have a limited amount of time to just kind of work with projects that doesn't really uh, think about long-term goals or visions. Whereas I guess our strategy on what we want to try to accomplish is to be involved in projects for decades or maybe two decades or something to just um, be close with the community and also grow with them and uh, just expand from there. And also the thought, um, um, I guess Akiko-san, you might know the uh, term hagetaka, but uh, it's uh, uh, bald eagles <laughs> looking mm. for distressed deals in Japan. Uh, so you would be snatching up. Uh, so foreign funds, foreign investment funds, um, regional Japan, they're kind of scared of foreign investors. Uh, and um, they're like, oh, we don't know how to deal with Chinese or American investors. And um, so they try to kind of avoid it. So we try to be the bridge between, uh, try to come up with a better long-term value creation vision. Uh, So not only investors, but the community uh, could also benefit uh, when we are involved in these projects. Mm, Right. You really have rare skill sets and a cultural background too, because there are issues and then most in most cases, you don't know what to do. And especially this uh, financial aspect, it's very hard to evaluate what's possible, what is not. So yeah, you are very precious for Japanese culture preservation, I have to say. Thank you, <laughs> yeah. Right, so, and the Kiraku in Japanese can mean different things. So why did you name your company Kiraku and uh, what does it mean? Well, um, my senpais or my former colleagues, they think kiraku means uh, laid back, (laughs) which is the most common way of, I guess, saying kiraku uh, is to be laid back, easygoing. But um, uh, I I see kiraku as uh, one, the kanji ki might be season, and raku is to enjoy. So one approach is to just uh, look at all the projects that we run. Uh, we run projects in Miyazaki and Hokkaido. So we kind of want to have our guests or our clients enjoy the rich and unique seasonality in Japan. Uh, so that's our kind of vision that we had in the name Kiraku. Uh, where second is to sort of like enjoy the economic cycle, um, not only 
we kind of want to focus on strategies, not only looking at the growth cycle, but uh, when you know situations like COVID or a global financial crisis happens, uh, we are always prepared uh, and on our toes to just um, just come up with better investment ideas or business ideas so that we don't continue on losing money. So it's we look at seasonality or cycles. Uh, and that's where the name <laughs> Kiraku mm, came from. Wow. Okay. I didn't expect this high financial cycle, but yeah, it's yeah, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah, then you, you mentioned, uh, you know, seasons. And it, when it comes to Japanese culture and especially food culture, seasonality, um, it means a lot, right? It's not just four seasons. And sometimes they're uh, 24, sometimes they say 20, uh, 72 seasons. And yeah, seasonality is really a big part of um, Japanese culture. So it's, it's a great meaning and great name mm-hmm. for many reasons. Okay, so um, so the Japan is known for its unique tradition and culture, but your inspiring business indicates that there these values are at risk, seriously. So what are the main causes of the loss of traditional buildings and businesses in Japan? Well, first, I, I guess, you know, the, uh, the population itself is getting older um, with the populations now decreasing quite rapidly. And uh, maybe because of, you know, the Japanese bubble uh, during the 1990s, uh, the collapse has really kind of uh, took away the risk takers motivation in Japan. So I feel like there's not enough risk takers that could just use creative thinking and kind of approach something a little bit differently. Um, Japan is very in line with everyone else. Um, if someone's not doing that, what they should be doing, um, you know, they'll be punished. And, and so it's, it's very uh, hard to become the first penguin in this culture, I feel like do so um luckily i'm half american (laughs) so i could kind of use my foreign card i say uh and i say oh and just try to uh, take the aggressive approach and to push it forward and so that's um one thing um i guess um more during the meiji era and such japan used to be like really good at creating unique products, uh, especially maybe post-war as well. Uh, but um, maybe the bubble collapse has really uh, made the country seem to have lost its touch for that mm. case. Right. Well, that's interesting. I think Japanese people tend to lack confidence in mm-hmm. our own culture, right? It's like somebody outside Japan says, oh, this is great. It's like, oh, really? <laughs> it's maybe yeah, it's yeah. more important than we thought. It's like a <laughs> classic mindset of Japanese people. So, yeah, I think you're playing your role very well. Yeah, too. yeah, that's, that's <laughs> my role. And I have to just <laughs> be the <laughs> sensitive foreigner type of a person that just kind of jumps in and say, mm. and once there's track record and, you know, once there's jiseki, then people are, start to get comfortable uh, a lot more and and then they start uh, you know making more creative solutions so it's mm. it's more like you know turning around that mentality is quite important if you right. like mm. right sounds like you're creating the model to follow so 
and it's been working, right? And uh, and how serious is the issue of losing traditional buildings and local culture along with it in in Japan? It's it sounds like pretty serious to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Um, so for one example, we have this district called Obi, which is a castle town down in Miyazaki Prefecture in Ichino City, um, and it's probably like three to five thousand people uh, living there. Um, and and but however, the buildings maybe like fifteen to twenty percent are vacant, uh, also known as akia. Uh, and there's sort of like kind of just left around since kind of like the kids generation now live in greater Tokyo area and they don't know what to do with the buildings. So they just kind of use it as storage. So, um, there were a lot of culture uh, involved. Uh, one was, uh, Miyazaki is known for their typhoon seasons and it's quite windy, um, in August and September-ish. Uh, so Kawara, uh, which is more like, uh, I don't I don't know how you'd say it, but the ceilings um, and such, they kind of use cement-like materials in order to avoid the Kawaras from flying around and so. Um, however, the last guy that kind of knew how to make that material passed away. So now the technique is now gone. So if you can't really preserve the building and culture then the uniqueness of that region is lost so that's kind of like uh, a sad thing that you know happens sometimes and you can't really protect everything so um yeah mm, wow oh, by the way kawara is like a small um pieces like a um, blocks to like layer over the roof of traditional japanese houses and it's like really beautiful design and too bad the the people who can make it is uh, disappearing. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. So, okay. Uh, so we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll discuss Ko's inspiring project of saving vanishing tradition and culture even more details. So please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, and my guest today is Ko Sandberg, who is the founder of Kiraku. Kiraku operates multiple projects that aim to preserve Japan's rich cultural and natural heritage for future generations. Okay, so um, so let's keep talking about your interesting projects. So um, maybe uh, to start, you have transformed an entire L-shaped alleyway of 24 machia. Uh, so machia is old traditional Japanese housing built over 110 years ago and on the blink of demolition uh, into luxury yokan, which uh, has 22 rooms and two restaurants. 
And、uh, the ryokan is called Nazuna Kyoto Tsubaki Street. So, how did the project begin and what was the process of the transformation?、Um, so, there's this,、uh, there was this alley, and you don't usually get that much alleys in your direction <laughs> as a project.、Um, usually, you kind of work on one or two houses and you,、uh, life goes on.、Um, but Every now and so, maybe like once every two years, you,、um, this whole entire alley comes up your direction. And, and this was kind of the case.、Um, this、uh, was introduced by one of the,、uh, so like、uh, a, a person related with Kyoto City.、Uh, so this, this project was based in Kyoto, but Uh, the whole L shaped alley was kind of like on sale, and there were a few potential buyers, but they were kind of trying to demolish everything and develop a new,、uh, so like a business hotel or apartment building、uh, to do so. But、uh, then was asked by、uh, someone related with the city that, you know, if we could kind of step in to propose some ideas to preserve the alleyway. Because Kyoto is all about alleys.、Um, I think Kyoto alleyways are very unique and cool looking. And from a cultural perspective, and it's very hard to come by in the market. And、uh, the, these alleys you can't really recreate now uh, due to uh, regulations, uh, due to.、Um, Uh, current laws in place. So it's very unique.、Uh, and this, this is all just grandfathered because it was built more than 110 years ago. So it's not really like you know, buying an office building or something like that. So, in I guess about a week or two,、uh, we came up with an idea and we started to do some conversion planning and making a business plan. And I guess within a week or two, we submitted an offer to the、uh, owner to purchase the whole alleyway. And in parallel, we were communicating with investors to finance the opportunity as well.、Um, and usually,、uh, when people think about Kyoto,、uh, they think about Gyeong or Kawaramachi or the central business district. So, and this alleyway was a little bit like. Far, not so far away. It's just maybe 10 minutes away by cab ride. But a lot of the institutional investors back then really passed on the deal because they didn't really get the idea and they didn't think the location was not that great、uh, and such. But um, a lot of um, we ended up、uh, raising good amount of money for the project. And now the performance is quite good at this point.、Mm, right. Yeah, it's just amazing. But Kyoto is really, like you said, it's known for alleys and it's really the、um, representative image of Kyoto. So, yeah, I think you really saved a big piece of the history in Kyoto.、Mm-hmm. Right. And,、uh, and your newest project is Sugimori, Suginomori Brewery. And、mm-hmm. you revived a brewery that was born in 1793. But closed in 2012. And、uh, so、mm-hmm. tell us about the project. Okay, sure. So, Sinomoi Brewery,、uh, it's located in Naraijuku, which is、uh, a post town in Nagano. And it's actually right between、uh, Tokyo and Kyoto. And it used to be one of the post towns when people were transporting you know, food and such between,、uh, at that time, Edo. 
the prior name for Tokyo and Kyoto. That was kind of like the midpoint destination uh, between the two cities. And Sinomoi Brewery was sort of like sitting in the middle. Uh, it was founded in 1793. And uh, however, it kind of closed down in 2012 uh, due to uh, not having a successor. And that's quite big of an issue right now in Japan that not a lot of business has a person that would succeed the business uh, and the business is not really being transformed into the hands of the young younger generation. Um, so this project, uh, the actual project owner is Takenaka Corporation, which is one of the largest uh, construction companies in Japan. And I was invited, uh, we were invited in, into this project uh, because they haven't really done uh, some conversions of old houses and yokan style projects before. So we were initially brought in as advisor to oversee the overall business planning. And initially they were just trying to create uh, yokan with only room and restaurant, but we kind of proposed a new idea uh, that they didn't really think of that much, but to just create, since the sake brewing license was still existing, um, it was dormant uh, and it wasn't gone. So uh, we proposed to use that to make a microbrewery adjacent into the restaurant uh, and kind of so that you could see the sake brewers make some sake while you eat breakfast or something uh, and thought it, it might be cool to do so. Uh, you usually see things like this in Napa Valley. So uh, <laughs> in the States, it's like, you know, the norm, but uh, Shiojiri, uh, which is uh, where Narai is located, uh, it's actually um, one of the major uh, wine producing areas in Japan as well, in the Shinshu region. Um, however, they're not really good at marketing itself. Uh, and I, I guess that's the main issue. So kind of want to take a new approach and how to transform a micro, uh, a sake brewery into a lodging facility with restaurant and to do so. But Takenoko was like, well, we never thought it before. So <laughs> uh, do, do you want to take over the operation and just <laughs> do you want to own, own the company? You could do that and we don't want to take the risk. So uh, I'm like, okay, sure. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of, cool uh to do so 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 we we start getting advisors on board and such and uh we we try to do something unique on top mm. of that yeah. right but you have experience with hotel management so far but running a secondary is a very different business so in, you you had to because you proposed it but why did you decide to get involved in the sake brewing business it sounds like it's not an easy thing to do yeah, uh, manufacturing is a completely different field from hotel management. Um, but you know, in the past, I was also involved in logistics, etc. So I was kind of uh, used to going across multiple industries and trying to cross everything together to uh, just do something unique. And um, but sake brewing business has always been one of my interests that uh, we I never really um, approached or executed that much in the past. Uh, but um, I guess the first sake brewery I was analyzing was maybe 10 years ago. Um, and uh, that, that was when I was kind of introduced to the industry. And after that, maybe I usually get 
introduced to maybe one, two to three sake breweries per year uh, uh, that is about to go bankrupt. And they asked me uh, if they could get acquired and turn around the business to do so. But usually, you know, I, I'm not a sake professional. And <laughs> I, you know, I love food, but <laughs> I don't know how to make sake. So I, um, and it was very hard to just focus on full time. So never really had the uh, dedication for that. Um, however, Narai, uh, the post town, is actually a well-known tourist destination in the Shinshu area. And thought, you know, I, I have the expertise in the hospitality industry, so why not blend it with the sake brewing business? Uh, so we think about a lot of uh, food pairing uh, with sake and how to kind of make cocktails uh, from sake and try to brew in different methods to do so uh, and kind of expand the horizon from there. And but this would probably not have happened if I didn't meet um, this uh, individual named Hidehiko Matsumoto. Uh, he used to be the former master brewer at Matsumoto Shizo, uh, which is known for the Shuhari brand in Kyoto. So uh, Matsumoto-san, uh, he's actually our advisor on the manufacturing side so that our team could focus, um, the, the manufacturing team could be advised by Matsumoto Shizu, former Matsumoto Shizu's uh, Matsumoto-san. And uh, our team at Kiraku could manage more of the management side uh, and focus on there. So we kind of separate the operation between manufacturing and management so that uh, we could kind of um, focus on what is necessary and who the experts are. Uh, they could uh, work well in that environment. Mm, right. And I heard a uh... That's the this uh, the new new brewery called the Suginomori Suzo is at the highest altitude as a sake brewery, and yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> so you know, yeah, with your answer, maybe you can tell us what kind of sake um, the the Suginomori Suginomori Suzo produces because you know that high altitude probably is like got lots of minerals and beautiful water, and it, which is very important for sake making right yeah yeah it's also very hard to boil water up there oh. <laughs> so that's that's kind of like um the craftsmen that uh that work in sinoi brewery they're all from kyoto so they they struggled very hard <laughs> to get used to uh with the altitude because it's completely different from how to brew in kyoto so uh, but we kind of focus on more like handcrafted, locally sourced materials. So all the rice is grown in Azumino, which is um, maybe about an hour, an hour and a half away from Narai up north. So um, I, I saw your, Akiko, I saw your other show uh, from um, Chris from uh, Matsumoto Jujo. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So... Yeah, they're, they're also in the area as well. So I'm sure they kind of use the vegetables from uh, the Azamino region. But um, so we kind of use the rice grown uh, over there. and But the water itself is from the mountains. So we just use natural uh, mountain water uh, to brew it. And that's how they brewed the sake since 1793. Um, and it seems very unique depending on the season. Uh, the texture of the water is different. 
due to I guess the coldness or uh, the seasonality. So uh, so it's not really uh, septic water or um, water source to houses, but Narai is quite special. Um, they've been always protecting their water source, and it's all naturally uh, gifted from the highest altitude in the Nagano region. So that's quite um, nice. Mm, right. Well, that's another reason I have to go to Nagano because I have to visit Chris at the Matsumoto Jujo <laughs> and then drink uh, Narai Sake. So the actual label is called the Narai, right? From uh, yes, Inno that's Ishiza. correct. Yeah. Right. Okay, so is it available outside Japan too, or not yet? Um, I'm still studying. Um, it's possible. Um, so we'll we'll start selling our first batch end of January. So we're just doing some crowdfunding campaign right now domestically, uh, getting trying to get some marketing done correctly uh, along the way. I guess uh, I'm looking at Hong Kong, Taiwan. Singapore right now uh, that seems to be the most easiest market mm. to jump into since it's a lot closer um, the states is always hard with all the state laws and federal laws <laughs> being right. all different so <laughs> so I, I'm I'm just uh, I, I I would like to get there <laughs> right. well, uh, hopefully soon uh, and hopefully um, yeah <laughs> yeah well keep me posted I really want to be the first to taste it so it sounds yes delicious. please <laughs> right. and uh, another impressive project you mentioned earlier but it's the Obi revitalization project in Miyazaki mm-hmm. Prefecture in Kyushu which mm-hmm. is the southern part of Japan and uh, it's a large scale even bigger than the Ali in Kyoto, it's a regional revitalization project. So how did it come about and uh, what was the process of the revitalization? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess uh, it all started off when one of our investors was kind of asked by the government if he knew anyone that could do something about akiyas or vacant homes. And we were kind of named up as one of the candidates to become the turnaround coordinators for the project. Um, and after competitions and such and talking with uh, and doing due diligence on the actual like region, uh, we became the official turnaround coordinator and uh, for the project. And we started drawing up uh, a master plan. And initially we kind of uh, converted two samurai houses, Bukiashiki, uh, into vacation homes. Uh, and these are also maybe 140 years old or something like that. Uh, very very uh, old old houses. Um, and we kind of tried to test the waters by making some prototype uh, assets and start from there. And usually kind of want to be considered as the first penguin in the project. Mm. So we would kind of be the first one because all the locals are like hey Kosan you're quite nuts and you can't charge <laughs> $400 a night for <laughs> a vacation home or hotels in the areas like $50 a night how could you charge $400 to your customer no one would come <laughs> we don't have anything <laughs> I'm like, well you know please uh, let me do what I do <laughs> and, <laughs> and just see see how it's done and but actually, the very unique, interesting thing was it was the first lodging license to be issued in the past 20 years. 
within yeah. the city. So uh, you see, you know, hotels being popped up in Tokyo and Kyoto and Osaka, maybe on a weekly basis or something. But uh, in the city, uh, no one has really uh, applied for a lodging permit <laughs> for the past 20 years. So they forgot how to process it <laughs> and such. So, um, but upon starting the operation um occupancy went like quite stable um maybe it was around 50 percent occupancy or something so not that bad as a start and then the locals were like oh it's working <laughs> and they and they, they started getting more comfortable and such so so then uh the following year um one of the locals he started to convert a vacant home into a restaurant <laughs> and then another guy started to just convert into a lodging facility as well so so then the locals start to jump in and they're like well if co could do it we could do it as well and i was mm. like yeah great so so it, it it actually gave a good vibe because no one was spending money uh to just put in capital into the town itself to kind of you know uh, brush up and polish up the town but but because we were able to make the cycle, um, you know, several million dollars per year goes into the market and, you know, that actually feeds uh, the construction workers in the town and the locals as well. And since um, they, they usually have about 200,000 people per year as tourists, but no one um, stays in Obi because there were never... A, <laughs> place to stay before mm. so they're all day trippers so each individual was spending maybe seven dollars a day uh seven dollars a person but our customers were spending maybe two hundred dollars per night or something like that so because you know they go out dining they go out drinking in the town as well so then uh, the locals the local restaurants were happy about that as well and from 2022, other larger players are planning to uh, come into the town as well. So JR Kyushu, which is the main uh, transportation uh, train company uh, in Kyushu region, uh, they're planning to open up a lodging facility as well. And JAL, Japan Airlines, uh, they're doing some conversion as well, uh, a little bit more lower lower rates, but more like casual uh, type of uh, hotel type of a play. So that's kind of like the ramp up that we try to envision and we come up with a master plan and hopefully organically, you know, money comes in, other players come in so that, you know, you could have a better market condition that way. Wow. You totally create a new economy in that small place in Miyazaki Prefecture. That's amazing, right? And the modern area, it's like a market effects so i'm sure that in a couple of years that area is almost unbelievably different thanks to your initiation <laughs> yeah i i guess the i the first year maybe the inbound tourists in the market was about maybe 20 percent the people that they stayed were from uh southeast asia or east asia in general but uh i guess on our third year of operation we had about 40 to 50% inbound tourists, but more from European areas and long-term stays. So we had a lot of guests from Europe that stayed with us for like a week or two. And they just read a book in the Angola and <laughs> Angola. And the locals are like, Kosan, that person, 
he's just reading a book for about a week. What is he doing? And I, I, I tell them, well, that's called taking a break and taking a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's classic, right? Because Japanese people yeah. tend to go plan, stay, watch, eat, and everything. So you need an Excel spreadsheet yeah, to spend a vacation. It's, it's, it's so it's so right? hard. Yeah, yeah, and you, you know, the, you mentioned enga. Enga is a traditional structure in an old classic house of Japan. It's basically it's facing the garden, and then it's it's like a, it functions as a chair or like a bed. You can do anything. You put at the table. You can chat with your neighbor who can just stop by because it's facing outside. So it's kind of like inside outside connecting place and. Uh, it's just an amazing space. It's too bad we don't have it anymore in modern Japanese houses. And mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. probably most Western houses don't have that kind of uh, connecting structure in the house. So, yeah, so that's called Engawa, right? So, okay, so how do you find your new projects like these interesting, exciting ones, one after another? Well, some some come through real estate brokers, but it, it kind of, ends up becoming a one-time project. Uh, So we kind of usually work with more like the central government or municipalities. And I guess a lot more frequent approach is through regional banks because they're quite the ones in trouble uh, because they loan money to these companies in the regional area, but they can't really uh, get the... Uh, money back <laughs> mm. uh, so they kind of usually kind of come, come up to us and say like hey we have this problem uh, they can't pay the money back uh, could you do anything about the asset because uh, they don't have any idea to do so so th- those um, problem solving uh, were kind of usually um involved uh, and trying to solve something for them or it might just be a direct introduction through a local in Kyoto or uh, someone from Takenaka Corporation might introduce us to a Yokan turnaround opportunity so um, so maybe through multiple channels I would say mm, right okay and uh, so what is the most challenging part of executing your projects um maybe finding good talents because you know depopulation in rural areas of japan is quite a critical issue um you know people just move to tokyo osaka uh and even kyoto as a destination but no one really goes back to let's say miyazaki or where they grew up or where they were born so it's because you know they don't really want to succeed their family's business or um, there's nothing exciting. So our approach is try to make something always unique uh, and exciting uh, for the talents to kind of commit to from moving to rural areas from uh, places like Tokyo and Osaka. Mm. So I guess that's one approach we really had to take for Sinomori Brewery because you know it, it is a small town and it's not really for everyone I'm sure um, Ashiko-san you living in New York you have this um, urban <laughs> desire and such so it's just um, uh, very hard for 
to convince the Kyoto brewers to move to Nagano as well. So those are kind of like always the challenging part and you really have to create an incentive or create something unique so that they could kind of um, brag about it as well. So that's always the hard part, uh, finding mm. talents, I feel like. Right. So you hit hunt and then convince that person for <laughs> in various ways to yes yes <laughs> it's it's more headhunting where you know the other counterparty in japan gets really upset sometimes because <laughs> mm. it's, it's yeah but yeah, uh, yeah headhunting is something that we usually have to do mm. but it sounds like the the projects you're involved in tend to be um very attractive to certain talents right because i i know um the younger generation sometimes return for the sake of having a unique lifestyle, like trying mm-hmm. to appreciate what tradition is about. And yeah, it, it sounds very hard. I'm sure it is hard, but it's not, I, I think there could be a certain very specific pool of people who could be very interested in doing that, including yes, outside mm-hmm. outside Japan too. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe some of our listeners may contact you too. Can I help yes. you? <laughs> please, please do so. <laughs> right. So, and what's the most rewarding part of your job at the Kiraku? Um, it's, it's, I guess it's quite rewarding um, just to have the feeling of trying to execute something creative um, that no one has really done before that much. Um, The approach that I usually take is um, very similar to what we've done in the past in hotel management as well. What, What we try to introduced into the sake brewing industry is you know what was the norm in the hotel industry but we tried to blend it into the new industry so i i guess just having this um this you know time and you know um being able to be creative uh to just um to uh it's it's just fun to do so so that's i guess the most rewarding part <laughs> of mm. my job right now yeah right so yeah there's so many financial projects like what you used to do but this has sounds like it's you you have to be a designer of the kind of the future you have to be a visionary to create because <laughs> people don't like you said in miyazaki people didn't believe that that's going to happen and you have to create the vision <laughs> so mm-hmm. right. yeah you you have to plan the area you have to understand the law side you have to understand tax <laughs> there's a lot of components that you really have to understand but but once that puzzle kind of fits together and something executes and it actually works as a project it's it's very um rewarding uh, mm. when that happens right well uh, you've done amazing job already but how do you evaluate your job so far in terms of the impact on the local business and culture um, so we, we work with like multiple local businesses and culture before, um, and it, it is working quite well, uh, it feels like, but the, we really have to expand our horizon and uh, ex- try to increase the pace that we do more deals. So um, as a prototype or a sandbox project, it's been working quite well, and we were able to kind of uh, test a lot our hypothesis and stuff. Uh, to just test the water. So it's more of now scaling uh, from this point. Mm. 
where we'll try to go across multiple regions and try to see if we could just put a larger impact into the field. So, so far it's going well, um, but so much work ahead right now. Mm, so, right. Yeah. yeah. What other projects are you working on right now? Um, so we're working on maybe six destinations right now. Um, um, and there's probably going to be about four coming in. Uh, so we're understaffed right now. But um, all the six destinations, maybe half is like a Yukon turnaround deal. And the remaining are more like development deals where we would kind of construct from scratch. But um, it's not only doing one project um, per property, but you kind of have to envision how you want to um, focus, how, how you want to take these destinations into a place. These are all hidden gems destinations that not a lot of inbound tourists or, you know, um, my friends in the States know. So you kind of want to make uh, the destination unique enough and marketable so that the next time you come to Japan, you're like, oh, maybe I want to go to this place or something like that. So we have like six right now, I guess, uh, that are kind of going forward right now. That's a lot. <laughs> so, well, uh, in longer term, do you have any plans and dreams? Well, it's, it's you know, it's baby steps, steps by steps. So, um, like the sake brewery stuff, um, I just got a call maybe last summer or something like that. So maybe uh, 18 months ago or, yeah, 17 months ago. And from there, we kind of stepped into the project. And, you know, if it was um, early 2020, I would have never thought that we would own a sake brewery and <laughs> operate our own sake now. But now we'll be distributing from next month. So so within a two-year horizon, you know, um, the ryokan and the hospitality field was slow for the past two years. So it's like, okay, why not export sake then? Mm. Uh, COVID can't stop that. So, so, so those are kind of like the plans um, not really plans, but um, I, I don't really have a plan at this point uh, to do so. But it's just more like trying to cross uh, industries together and uh, trying to bridge the relationship between, you know, the U.S. and Japan, uh, trying to get uh, Japan to be noticed a little bit more because there's so much unique aspects and um, culture uh, everywhere you go in Japan. So instead of just being Tokyo, Kyoto, Osaka for about a week or two, um, just want to make a unique destination and food and experience culture to just, you know, have fun. So that's kind of like what we're trying to do right now. Mm, I, I look forward to visiting uh, one or two of your new places because it's it's really important, like you said. Um, hidden gems are really hidden. It's like beyond big um, stations, like JL Station, Tokyo, Kyoto, Osaka, mm -hmm, Nagoya. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, so, uh, well, uh, you have a very amazing skill sets and talent and uh, sensibility to understand what's important for Japanese culture. So I'm so glad you're doing this amazing job like this. So, thank you very much. 
Yeah. So how can we find your updates online and on social media? <laughs> uh, we're supposed to update our corporate website because we've been we haven't done it for quite a while so hopefully we'll launch the new website by february-ish but meanwhile uh we're on instagram if it's the sake brewery it's uh narai official uh is the username and uh for our machia uh ryokans it's uh nazuna official is uh, two of our main, mainly used Instagram accounts and such. So, and hopefully uh, from February, we'll release more information on our new projects along with uh, more like the before after website so that we could show more contents uh, mm. to people uh, that might be interested. Okay, so that's that's going to be kiraku, K-I-R-A-K-U.com? Or- uh, dot I-O. Oh, dot I-O. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Right. Okay, and uh, your personal um, account? Any anything to follow? Uh, no, I, I don't have I don't have anything to okay. follow right now. So <laughs> I don't mind you too busy. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So uh, yeah, but thank you so much for joining us today, Cole. And I know you're recording from one of your properties, like project properties. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So and thank you for staying up so late. Thanks so much. No worries. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or akikwatema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Engineer is Matt Patterson, and thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.